Indeed, Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us and for the way you've made your love known to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Um, And we celebrate once again his coming in humility as a baby born in Bethlehem uh, 2,000 years ago during this season of Christmas and Epiphany. And we ask, Lord, that you would um, give us great joy in remembering our salvation through him. And then, Lord, show us now as we dig into scripture, show us um, how these words, this word of life, applies to us today, not just to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, but for us today, Lord, show us what this means for us. And we ask this for your glory's sake and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So remembering the who, what, where, when, why of this letter to the Corinthians, this is the first letter to the Corinthians. We think that there are more than just two. We have two in our Bible, but we remember we think that there is one that preceded this one that Paul references. Then we also think there may have been one in between this letter and the next letter. But what we do know is um, this is the first one that we have. And one of the things you've noticed, um, remember about Corinth, what, what have we been saying about the people of Corinth? What was the city like there? Anybody remember? It was greasy a lot of people because of its location. That's right, it was a hodgepodge. And what was its location like, Barbara? Do you remember what the geography? It's right there on a... I know, we we have a lot of like $20 words in this class, right? It was, it's right there on an isthmus. Remember, an isthmus is a tiny little great scrabble word for a tiny spit of land that connects two larger land masses. So because it was there and um, people didn't want to go all the way around the bottom land mass to go um, as they sailed west or sailed east, so what they would do is there was a harbor, remember, on one side of the isthmus and another harbor on the other side, and Corinth was right there. So Corinth basically straddled this isthmus, and, um, and so it had people coming in, trade and merchants coming in from the east, sorry, I should change that for you, from the east, and then um, also coming in from the west and going out in both directions. And so we've said all sorts of different things about what this means, is that there were, while it was a Roman colony that was rebuilt after being destroyed by the Romans, so it was no longer as Greek as it was in the BCs, in the ADs it's very much more Roman, Um, But what we see is that there's an influx of people from all different places, all around the known world, all different kinds of ethnicities, all different people worshiping all different kinds of gods with all different ideas about sexuality, right? So remember, um, I've even just said, pardon me for being so crass, but I've even just said, think sailors, right, coming in from everywhere, and think um, multiple little shrines and temples of gods that were being worshipped in this place. And so as, um, as one commentator says, and this is one of my favorite um, quotes about the people of Corinth and the church of Corinth, is that Paul, Paul has come through and preached the gospel to them, they believed, and then other teachers have come through after him and have changed, basically um, um, influenced the people of Corinth and the leaders within Corinth the church in Corinth, those leaders of the church have um, asserted dominance over other people in Corinth based on things that are not necessarily spiritually good. And so they're beginning to teach things that are heretical to the gospel. And so Paul starts out by reminding them what the gospel is. We saw that in those first couple of chapters about wisdom versus folly. Remember, human wisdom um, versus God's wisdom. And God's wisdom seems like folly to us in our own minds. And yet in his great wisdom, um, he came down in weakness to come and save us, um, to give himself for us. And so just that remembering God's uh, wisdom is much higher than our wisdom. We would never save ourselves that way, right? We would have a great big victory, um, a landslide win, a military victory. It would be all rah-rah and no pain and suffering. And God himself deigns to submit himself to pain and suffering on our behalf in order to redeem us. So Paul starts out with that very early on, reiterating the gospel. Um, But then he's going to, for the most of the letter, um, unlike some of his other letters where he spends a lot of time dealing with theology, for most of his letter he's going to address these little um, things, these behaviors, and he's not so much concerned about correcting their behavior um, so that they could then be respectable, which we often are when we think about our children or our grandchildren. Could you just chew with your mouth closed, please? Or could you just this? 
or that because it just makes us feel more civilized or something. Um, but he's doing it because their misbehavior masks a disbelief, right? And so again, what um, that commentator I started to say that says is that Paul is trying to do surgery on this uh, Corinthian church. He's trying to take um, the Corinth out of them, essentially take this paganism that's so entrenched in their identity out of the church and to identify, help them identify it for what it is and to see how it's so different from the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they themselves will correct themselves. And he tries to do this sometimes in ways that are frustrating and I know we've talked about sometimes it's frustrating to hear him argue, argue, argue and, but he's qualifying things because he's trying to win them with love and not just um, with a rod. He's not just trying to say don't do this because he understands human nature. And so he's trying to say, you would never do this, would you? You're too smart to do this, would you? aren't you? You know better than to do this, don't you? And he's going to keep um, qualifying and hedging his bets as a way of softening his commands in the hopes that even in their sinful flesh they can hear him and, um, and change. Okay. Oh, any thoughts about that? Anybody want to add anything? I didn't ask you lots of questions. You can be <laughs> glad for that. I'm, I'm sure we're all a little rusty, including myself, after Christmas. Um, well, so a couple things we saw. Um, I'm just going to go through those things in the context. He has said, Paul has said no to Gnostic extremes. Remember, what is Gnosticism, that funny word with the G at the beginning and the N immediately following? Anybody remember what it means? Knowledge. The linguist in me, the one who was a French major who loves languages and playing around with all those little parts of the languages, that G-N becomes a K-N when it ends up become, you know, being passed down to English. So think about knowledge when you think about Gnosticism. And what did the Gnostics believe? It was a, let me just say it was a philosophy that was pagan that was around in the ancient world. And so people knew about it. And when the Christians became Christian, pagans became Christian, they had known Gnosticism and they saw some similarities and they tried to just wholeheartedly meld them together. And Paul's saying, no, 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 they're different. Um, and so the knowledge that's Christian knowledge is different than this Gnosticism, that um, this philosophy that was really a kind of mysticism propagated. So what is Gnosticism? Does anybody remember what are some characteristics of Gnosticism? It's about knowledge, right? Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's right. Our English word for agnostic. Well, agnostics, what I will say, agnostics are essentially ones who say, I don't know, right? They're not so hard and fast as atheists to say there is no God, nor will they commit and say for sure there is a God and it's the God revealed in the Christian scripture. So agnostics are on the fence. So they just throw up their hands and say, I don't know. So in the contrast to that, the opposite of that, gnostics would be ones who say, I know I have access to this secret knowledge. Don't you want some? Well, I'll show you how you can get some. You have to do all these things to get the secret knowledge. And these, it, it creates this community of insiders versus outsiders, those in the know versus those who don't know. We do this all the time um, in our society, whether we call ourselves Gnostics for it or not. But this secret knowledge about God, um, also it, within this pagan mysticism involved also this, um, this, these mysteries. It was so mysterious. Only some would know, only the initiated would know about God, and all the rest had to kind of serve those who did know. And it, what it led to, it also had this inherent um, belief that the stuff of creation is bad. That's another defining characteristic of Gnosticism. This stuff, as um, one of my church history professors said, it matter is, it, this stuff is yucky, my flesh, or just this disdain for all of the things of the body. And so, um, so the need to eat, or the need to drink water, or the need to, um, even the sexual urges, were seen as being inherently bad in and of themselves. And as a Gnostic, you would either totally deny yourself. There would be this um, switch to either this extreme asceticism, if the body is yucky and stuff doesn't matter, what you do in the body doesn't matter, um, then you need to either punish the body 
so that you gain greater knowledge, um, and or anything goes. And so that's where we have this um, asceticism versus licentiousness, this strange Gnosticism led to one of these two extremes. And both are present in Corinth, and Paul is seeking to correct both. Either this extreme self-denial um, that says the body's so bad we can't give it any leeway. Um, and that's where they would sit, you know, deny themselves food. Um, you, would, you see this a lot in many modern spiritualities, just extreme fasting to the point of fainting, um, to the point where it's no longer about God, it's actually about you and what can you do, how can you punish your body in such a way that you somehow gain spiritual wisdom. No, no, no. That's not what Paul is advocating for, and that's not at all a part of Christianity, um, according to Scripture. Versus, so that extreme asceticism versus this licentiousness, which says anything goes. You can do whatever you want in your body. You can eat that whole cake because it doesn't matter. Or you can sleep around because it doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, no, 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 neither one of these is right. So we saw this in chapter 6, chapter 7, even chapters 4 and 5, where he's um, discouraging people, for example, discouraging the men from going to see prostitutes. He's like, that's bad. You can't do that, <laughs> basically. This is not a part of um, Christian faith. Or he's saying for those who were, in merit, who were married, somehow they'd swung to the opposite end. If matter is bad, then even in marriage you can't have sex. And he's saying, no, no, that's okay, go for it. That's what, that's what marriage is for. That's the proper place um, for this, this bodily expression. So he's trying to overcorrect these, correct these um, extremes that have cropped up in their midst. Any thoughts or questions about that? Okay. He's going to also on to talk about freedoms. They had experienced a lot of freedom in the Holy Spirit as they'd come to faith. And they were ex experiencing this freedom and, uh, freedom and exercising their freedom in such ways that were actually harmful to each other. Remember, we've talked about a couple of these, again, throughout chapters, um, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Mm -hmm. He's talked about food that was sacrificed to idols. He's talked about, um, and he talks a lot about the food sacrificed to idols. He talks about um, women wearing veils in church, covering their heads. He talks about communion and actually sharing in fellowship over um, this Holy Supper, over the Lord's Supper. And he talks about this, um, he's basically, in all of those different um, situations, the bottom line is that their actions should be motivated by love and not by this special knowledge, this special freedom that they have now that they're Christians. And so he says, no, we know that meat sacrificed to idols, it doesn't matter. Those idols are not gods. Any god that is not the Lord is not a real god. So on one level, can you partake of that meat and not be sullied spiritually by it? Yes. But for those who are new to the faith, those who are weak in their faith, who used to do that all the time and still really believe that those idols are gods, you wouldn't want them to stumble in their faith just because they saw you eating meat sacrificed to an idol, would you? And so that's the defining way to act is based on love. And so he says, you're free to eat, but you restrain yourself out of love. And the same thing with the head coverings. The women hadn't been covering their hair when they were in worship, which was, um, again, remember that was a sign um, at home, they could have their heads uncovered, um, and going, but going out into the public, no respectable Roman or Greek or Jewish woman would have her hair uncovered. We're pretty sure about that. And so in their freedom in the church, this newfound freedom that these women had, which is wonderful, they've taken off their head coverings in the midst of the body of Christ, maybe because it's seen as being a family. And so in the family, you know, you can take off your veil. At home, you can take off your veil, and it's fine. And Paul's saying, no, 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 let's keep them on. And again, remember my argument for that. I really do think that it's, it's both out of modesty and out of preserving the distinction between the sexes. He's saying, no, let's preserve men look like men and women look like women, which is one of the reasons why this is something culturally just for them. We don't wear head coverings in church now because we have other ways of preserving the distinctions between men and women. But then the other aspect of it is he's saying ladies cover up because when you speak in church, when you prophesy, when you pray, 
um, we don't want we don't want the men to stop and look at you instead of being drawn into worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Women are there's something about us that draws men to us, isn't there? There's something about us that makes men say, "Wow!" And the spiritual and the sexual is somewhat tied together. And so he's again saying, "Cover up um, because you love your brothers." Um, you have the freedom to take off your veil, but cover up because you love your brothers. And I think about that today with modesty. Again, I'm grateful for the robes that I get to wear on Sunday morning. They hide a lot. For they've hid this belly for a long time, but now people are starting to see. They hide things in a good way. They express a modesty um, that's helpful in worship, especially when a woman is leading worship. Okay, the other thing was communion. Um, some had been eating and drinking before others got there, and he just said, he, he, this is of, of paramount importance and concern. He says, it's not even the Lord's Supper if some go hungry and don't get to eat. It's not even the Lord's Supper if you're um, imposing your social status upon the way you serve communion. If there was, um, if there was a special club in our church, if there was a way, you know, those really important people got to receive it in a different way than everyone else, um, it would not be the same thing as the Lord's Supper. Um, any thoughts or questions about that before I continue on and we look at chapters 12 and 13, which we talked about last time? I know this is a little bit of a roller coaster. So last time we met, we looked again at chapters 12 and 13. We're still talking, Paul, beginning in chapter 11, he's been talking about public worship. Um, he talked about the veils and communion as a part of public worship. Chapter 12 goes on to talk about the spiritual gifts in worship. Part of this Gnosticism that had taken root in their midst was this pride that they had in being spiritual. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were able to do these amazing things, speak amazing things, speak in tongues, um, say amazing things, do things beyond their own ability, and they marveled in it. But some of them were lording it over others. And um, some of it were saying that the spiritual gifts that the Lord gave them were more important than the spiritual gifts that the Lord gave other people. And they were trying to, um, they were setting up kind of a hierarchy of gifts. And it seems as though, um, Paul, it, it seems as though the gifts that they were really exalting, and one gift in particular, was the gift of speaking in tongues. And Paul is saying, no, 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 all of the gifts are given by the one Lord and they're for the body. There's unity within the body of Christ, even though there are many members. Just like in a physical body, there are many different parts, and the different parts of the body do different things. But they are just equally parts of the same body, and they're, um, even though they're different in function, they are equally important. Even though we treat them differently um, with respect or modesty, they are equally important. Um, so again, he's going to talk about having love be the uh, motivating factor for all of their action, not this sense of self-importance, not this sense of um, pride, not being puffed up, as he said again and again throughout this letter, but rather being humble and looking out for each other in love. Um, so he's talked about many members, one body. He's talked to, in chapter 13, he goes right from that discussion of many members and one body in chapter 12 into the beautiful hymn to love that we hear at so many weddings. And I love putting it back into its context. You know, we think about it in terms of eros love, right? The love between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, that passionate love. And Paul's saying, that's not the original context. The original context is within this agape love, um, within the church, this self-denying, self-sacrificing love. And I like to say with, um, when, I actually like having it in weddings because I think a lot of couples don't realize that um, eros is not going to make your marriage work. <laughs> you got to have agape as well. And philios, which is the friendship love of companionship. You need all of them for the flame to keep going, <coughs> um, to keep fueling that car. Otherwise, you're going to burn out and run out of gas early on. Um, so, so, so much the better um, for having that passage read at weddings. But we see in context that Paul is really talking about how to behave as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and it's such a beautiful hymn. We talked about love and what is, um, what is the character of love that, that is agape love, that's love from God himself. Well, we see the character of God's own love. We talked about this because it was Christmas in the way he humbles himself. 
to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. We talked about love coming down. Love humbles itself. Um, Love is in the eye of the beholder. Um, Love serves um, others. Love gives up um, one's own will on behalf of others. And he talks about this in his description of love being patient and kind, um, not insisting on its own way, not being irritable or resentful. Um, Love bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. How amazing that this discussion of love happens in the context of these gifts. And he says this gift of love is the best thing. None of the other gifts make any any sense. And he ended chapter 12 leading into chapter 13, but um, earnestly desire the higher gifts, chapter 12, verse 31, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And again, the excellent way is the way of love. And he's going to pick right back up with what he was talking about in chapter 12, right now in chapter 14. We'll see that in just a minute as we begin reading. Um, Any thoughts as I take a breath? Any observations? Anything you've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks while we haven't been meeting? Pat? You mentioned agape love. Yeah. Philios. Okay, again, and I haven't, Philios is that um, friendship love. So think (coughs) of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's Greek for brotherly love. Philos is love. A brother is Adelphos. So, sorry, what was that? What was the the third one? Oh, so Eros is that passionate love, um, the the wowzers of being in love. I consider Eros being in love. Um, Philos or Philios is that friendship, companionship. Um, And then agape love is a different kind of love. And and Christianity really took that word to understand that um, self-sacrificial love, Mm -hmm. which we see in the love of God for us, in Jesus Christ, and that we see poured out in love horizontally for other people as a result of having been loved. We love because he first loved us, right? So we receive his love kind of in a vertical plane and, and return it to him in thanksgiving. And it also spills out because of the power of the Holy Spirit, that love as our hearts are changed and transformed, it spills out naturally into the way we interact with others, Lord willing, by, like by God's grace. I was Pat, you know my favorite image. <laughs> Thank you. I do talk about that a lot, don't I? Oh, well, I remember. <laughs> so Pat's remembering, and I can't remember how many times I've said it or haven't said it, but one of my favorite images is from an old car commercial and it's a luxury car, and on the luxury car, someone put um, those champagne glasses that are back in fashion now, the coupes, and not just flutes, but coupes, and in a pyramid, they put the champagne glasses. And it's just a picture of luxury, but I consistently think about it in terms of God's love for us, that he pours out his love, and in the car commercial, someone is taking a bottle, very expensive champagne, I'm sure, and pouring it into the top, pinnacle of the pyramid where there's just one champagne coupe and it spills out into the next level where there are two champagne coupes and then it spills out into the third or fourth level and it keeps going down and it's this champagne waterfall fountain on top of this car of course the whole point is the luxury car allows all of these champagne glasses to stay still while they're receiving all of this lovely champagne but I just think about it as this liquid love poured out into our hearts God's love poured out towards us in Jesus Christ, and then that transforms us to be able to offer and pour out that love to other people. And that's God's work, not our work. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about, is allowing that love, receiving that love again, allowing that love to overflow into our lives for other people. So whenever you're thinking, like, I really, I have this problem where I'm like, I really don't love that person. I would really like to love that person. Even if I never like that person, I know, Lord, I'm called to love that person. That really is his work in me, and so praying for that transformation of heart is something that we can do to, act, to welcome his love, and, and receiving his love once again softens our hearts so that we then are somehow able to love the unlovable around us. Yeah, so if you're like, no, I really don't love that person, it's okay to admit it. I mean, that's part of the <laughs> repentance. Yeah. Yeah, what's that? I was going to say, I've never heard those three. And I think that's just really good that you bring that out. Okay. I was wondering, did they talk about that in marriage counseling? 
I do. And I actually think, and again, I'm terribly unschooled on it right now. I'm kind of going off the top of my head, so forgive me. There are other, I think C.S. Lewis identifies four in his book called The Four Loves. Again, I haven't read it. It's on my list, but one of these days I'll read it, maybe on maternity leave. But there are classically these identifications of love. And the problem is we only have one English word for all of them. But other languages, like the Greek, has multiple words to describe these kinds of love. And that's where I think it's so important. I do talk about it a lot whenever I do marriage counseling with people before weddings because it's so different. You know, you, and they're all a flutter with eros, and they have no idea that, that they're going to crash and burn unless they've got some other love fueling. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. I'm glad that's. I'm glad that's helpful. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I should. Oh, I lost my. Hmm. Okay, it's must be in the front. Um, <laughs> fill us. F I L O S or sometimes there's another I in there. F I L I O S. Okay. And I'm forgetting my Greek enough to forget which which one is the real noun. And then agape. Mm-hmm. A-G-A-P-E and eros, E-R-O-S. And just think about, you can think about some of the words that we have that come from those words that help help make sense of what they are. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions before we actually dig into chapter 14? We'll be looking at chapter 14 next week too, but I think you're going to find chapter 14 is pretty straightforward. So Paul's talking about this um, still more excellent way in chapter 13, but he's also going to go back to what he said in chapter 12, verse 31. He urged them. Um, he listed all of these gifts. He, he listed um, all of these gifts again, and he put tongues at the end. So I'm going to read chapter 12, um, verse 28 through 31 and then I'm going to go right into chapter 14 and you could just imagine that hymn to love in between and God has appointed in the church first apostles second prophets third teachers then miracles then gifts of healing helping administrating and various kinds of tongues are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers do all work miracles do all possess gifts of healing do all speak with tongues do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then continuing on in chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. According to Paul then, what are the higher gifts? He said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. What does he identify as being a higher gift? gift of prophecy he puts that at the pinnacle and and why does he put that at the pinnacle of what would be the most desirable gift to have because I think of a prophecy or prophets coming directly from God mm-hmm. it's, it's speech mm-hmm. right that that's directly from God mm-hmm. what else it benefits others it benefits others it's intelligible it's clear communication hopefully um, he, it, do you see how Paul might be trying to counteract an imbalance in their prioritizing of gifts? You know, we see kind of implicitly that he, it's not that he doesn't think tongues are great, but he's just, it seems as though they thought tongues were the best thing ever. And they, they were kind of qualifying those who were spiritual as those who had the gift of tongues. Um, so Paul does seem to encourage them to prophesy over speaking in tongues. And why? In verse 4 he says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Um, if the tongue is not intelligible to other people, how are they going to be edified by it? 
He's really saying this is, again, this is not about you and what God's given you to do and how important you are and how spiritual you are. It's about your brothers and sisters. Again, he's trying to root and ground them in that other-centered, other-focused love right here. So it makes sense coming right out of chapter 13. Um, just a little side note, there are differences and some differences and some similarities between the gift of tongues that's mentioned here versus the gift of tongues that's mentioned in Acts 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Um, there, remember, as we saw two years ago when we studied Acts, there the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was poured out upon the believers in Jesus as they were in the upper room, and remember, they spilled out. They spilled out of the upper room into the road somehow. And there were, it seemed as though there were um, tongues of fire hanging over their heads. And then also they started to speak in tongues. It's the same word in the Greek. Speak in tongues, essentially in languages, that they had never learned. And so there they are out on the street speaking in these languages that those individuals had never learned, but that the people in the street knew. And the people in the street were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And so all these Jews from all around the known world who had cradle languages that were different from Hebrew or Aramaic, they were suddenly able to understand what these Hebrew-speaking, native-speaking Jewish Christians were saying. Um, And so for them, that was not unintelligible speech, right? The purpose and the goal of that kind of speech was so that the gospel would go forth in the cradle language of those who had never heard the good news about Jesus Christ. It's different than what Paul's talking about here in chapter, um, chapter 14. This kind of tongues is also a gift given by the Holy Spirit, but this is given, this is the kind, this is what maybe some people today would call a prayer language. Have you ever been somewhere where someone was speaking in tongues? No? Yeah, where was it? Do you mind telling? Was, was it? It's in small groups. In small groups? Yeah. Janice Janice. knew it. Yeah. Uh, Janice is, um, I've heard that a lot, that Janice has the gift of tongues. And it's anybody who's prayed with them has noticed that. So, and some people at Advent House do still have the, anybody here have the gift of tongues? My, um, both my parents have the gift of tongues. And so my whole life they've prayed for me to have the gift of tongues. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I'd rather have other gifts, but I mean, if that's a gift I get to receive, awesome. I'll love it. I want all the gifts I could possibly have. That'd be great, especially if it's for the Lord's glory. Um, and I, I like to say I have, I have, I can tell, I sense when people are praying in tongues. Have you ever been around someone praying in tongues? It's a powerful experience. Um, you sense the power of God with you, even if you don't know what in the heck the person's saying. Um, and so for me, when that happens, when I've been in that situation, I again don't try to sometimes it's freaky and sometimes you're like why are they what's going on why are they talking like that or not talking or babbling like that yeah it's both hands it's both hands it's an openness to it and then also in some ways allowing God to do it but they're in control of it so they could stop if they wanted to um, and that's where, again, seeing my parents exercise these gifts in our little church in Pittsburgh growing up, which was more of an evangelical church than a charismatic church, even though my parents were both evangelical and charismatic Anglicans or Episcopalians, you'd see they wouldn't practice it, they wouldn't um, exercise their gift in the midst of public worship. But if you went up to pray one on one with them, they might exercise it. Or, I knew that they would exercise it. Sometimes I'd hear it. You'd hear it, and I'd often hear them under their breath praying in tongues. I'd hear my mother praying in tongues under her breath, and just sort of this soft, liquid sound. Um, And I didn't know what it was, really. I mean, I did as I grew up, but then um, when I was in college, they they were, my father was the rector of a very charismatic church in Connecticut. Um, It's a parish called um, St. Paul's Darien, which is, there's a whole book written about it called Miracle in Darien. It was always known as a charismatic church and so then my parents who are charismatic suddenly they're leading this charismatic church where they already have a lot of people who speak in tongues and suddenly I realize oh they've always had this gift now they're just exercising it more publicly than they were in out of respect and love they were obeying this passage out of respect and love for this parish where it wasn't a common thing it would have freaked people out and not been helpful they were not practicing it then in this other context 
they were. Um, so any thoughts about that? What Paul says is that this kind of prayer language builds up the believer. And essentially, for those who do practice the prayer language, who speak in tongues, they, they recognize that. There is a sweet fellowship and a sense of deep communion with God through his Holy Spirit when your spirit speaks to God even in a way that your mind doesn't understand. As strange as that sounds, it's very peaceful emotionally. It kind of disconnects your mind so that you're communing with the Lord really spiritually and emotionally, and it can be a very restful, upbuilding thing. So Paul, what Paul says makes total sense to me. It, it is a, a, an individually upbuilding thing for the believer who has the gift. But for everyone else, um, they might say, okay, this person has this gift. God's really in our presence as this gift is being exercised. I still don't know what the heck they're saying. It still doesn't build up other people as much as these other gifts do. And Paul is, again, trying to correct them, trying to keep this, um, this gift in its place. He's saying it's a great gift to have. It's not the best gift. And why? Because it doesn't edify or build up other people in the way that uh, the gift of prophecy does. Okay. Anyone else have any thoughts about that? Anybody had a negative experience with the gift of tongues? I have, yeah, Pat. I was just about yeah. to say, it's, it's just like you said, it's, it's mysterious. It's mysterious. It's hard for the mind to grasp mm-hmm. sometimes. It's hard to Peter, I've always heard that, which is marvelous, that Janice would speak in tongues and then Peter would interpret. And that's maybe why they used it so publicly when they ministered through the Advent House here, here in Birmingham. Um, again, it is mysterious. It's um, uh, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I always, and again, I'm someone who believes that they're still in operation today because you encounter them, you run into them. Not everyone believes that. Some people believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit were really just for the apostolic age before scripture was written down. I believe they're still in effect today. And partly I had to ask myself, especially coming home from college to this church experience that was so different from my experience growing up, I had to say, is it possible that God could do this? Absolutely. Is it possible that human fleshliness is getting in the way? Absolutely. And so if there's someone exercising a spiritual gift and you're like a little bit turned off and sort of like, oh, that's, they're just showboating. Oh, it's all about that person or it's all about blah, blah, blah. But you, you just might be right. You don't want to accuse them of it. But you just sort of, okay, Lord, that's called discernment. You know, you just sense that might be that person's flesh getting in the way. Could it still be God working through them? Absolutely. God works through such broken vessels as each one of us. Um, so is it possible that he's working through a broken vessel in that kind of spiritual way? I would say yes, but again, proceed with caution. And, and, and with trusting in the Lord and discernment and prayer. Um, I would find it very unsettling. It's unusual, yeah, if someone was speaking in tongues. Well, again, that's the question of where. And is it in a prayer time, the, the most beautiful way I've experienced it is in a prayer time. You go to receive prayer, like from Janice and Peter, and someone is totally in fellowship with the Lord, listening to the Lord. If you go to Advent House, sometimes some of the prayer warriors at Advent House will pray, or the intercessors will pray in tongues, but they don't always pray it over you. And they'll ask you if you feel comfortable with it. Um, and so in that situation, I'd encourage you to, it's actually, I'd encourage you to try to experience it. Because it's, it, it's, It'll it'll make you scratch your head, and it might be and it might be a very peaceful and calm experience if you can withhold judgment and just rest and trust that the Lord is present, even though there might be some flesh present too. Okay, I have a yeah, question. So you were saying, and and uh, I to have Jana. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she speaks in tongues, and Peter interpreted it. So does that mean that she doesn't understand what God's saying to her? Mm-hmm. She does not. Mm-mm. So the pe- so most people who speak in tongues don't know what he's saying, Mm-mm. the Holy Spirit Mm-mm. saying to Mm-mm. them. Mm-mm. It's a way of. It's almost as though they're. This sounds terrible. This makes it sound even worse. No, because they're awake and able to interact. It's almost as though their mind. They've let go of their mind. They're just resting spiritually, 
in the Lord's presence, and they're, it's almost like they're exhaling and allowing their mouth to just do whatever it wants to do in sunlight, and, and they get this, it's like a babbling brook if you've ever heard it, or if you've ever been to, anybody seen the Lord of the Rings movies? The elves in the Lord of the Rings movies sound like they're speaking in tongues, which my parents laugh. They're like, can they interpret what they say then? Most, you mean in the movie? Or my par- no, my parents. No, my parents won't necessarily. Sometimes they will get an interpretation, but, but most often they won't. And so in this prayer language, it's really a way for the heart to speak and pray to God. And again, it's something that not every Christian has. In Pentecostal churches, they'll say, some Pentecostal churches will say, every Christian, if you're a Christian and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to have a prayer language. And that's a very destructive teaching. And that's very close to what was being taught at Corinth. If you, don't have a, if you can't speak in tongues, then are you really a Christian? And they were really denigrating other people in a terrible way and saying, well, maybe, maybe you're not. And in a lot of Pentecostal churches, that's what will happen. So that's where you have to be careful. Um, yeah, Eve. Can you just choose at any moment to start speaking in tongues? Someone who has the gift feel of tongues? A, a presence. There's a sense of a presence. It's in worship. Okay. It's in prayer. When you're praying, there's a sense mm-hmm. of... And some people have a different sense of, am I choosing this? Or am I being carried along with it? Like... Like being on the lazy river, you know, you're in the inner tube and you don't always get to, you kind of are being funneled along, carried along with it. But still you're in control, you can stop the tap if you just, you know. So you it's a little bit of both. If your mother speaks in tongues. What's that? Yeah. If your mother was speaking in tongues and you heard her, mm-hmm. you, could, you could never say, Mother, what, what were you saying? I could ask her. I could say, um, do, do you get a sense of what, what that, because it's her, again, it's her spirit speaking to the Lord. So she's, she might have a sense of, well, I was praying for this, and that's what came out of my mouth. So maybe that's similar. Yeah. Rather than it, so it's almost like it's this direction rather than that direction, even though it's the Holy Spirit that empowers you to speak in that direction. Janice's tongues were different. That was a more prophetic kind of tongue. Mm-hmm. That's so how everybody has this has their own language. Um, not necessarily, and they're not necessarily like different languages like French, Spanish. That's different. That's the Acts 2 kind of language. So again, what I would say is when you encounter this in another Christian or another group of Christians, proceed with caution. Yeah. Uh, recognize, could God do this? Yes, it's possible. Um, is there probably a, some flesh going on here in human need to feel important or whatever? Probably. But can, could God still do this? Yeah. You know, I, I think yeah, Mary. Except for the, the interpreting the tongues, I think the way you're describing speaking in tongues being a flow from the human to God, mm-hmm. I think I find prophesying more troubling. Oh, interesting. That means this person is saying, I got the message from God, mm-hmm. and here it is. Yeah, that then the flesh can really come into play. Absolutely. And you're, it's not just you interpreting somebody in tongues. You're trying to interpret this person's connection to God. Mm-hmm. And that could be, even though Paul is saying yeah. that's more important, it, it seems more troubling. Our understanding, our understanding of prophesying is that it is very similar to a sermon. Okay? So if you think about a sermon, someone getting up. Well, Sermons are different than just explaining what you know about scripture in a given, you know, in a worship context. I mean, it really is a prayerful consideration. What, where is this group of people? Where is this congregation, spiritually, pastorally? What's going on? And what does, what is God's heart for this congregation right now? And that's why the gospel doesn't change because it's always. Uh, God's mercy and grace extended to broken sinners, right? And so there's always a sense of that brokenness. There's always the need to repent. There's always the need to hear of God's unfailing mercy extended to us. Um, but it, sometimes it gets very particular. You know, I remember um, even just Zach a couple of weeks ago from the pulpit talked about divorce, for example, as something that just is tearing people apart. 
and just he really applied some pastoral balm right there. That's from the Lord. That's something God wants for his people to experience, I would say. And so maybe maybe there's... So I have less trouble with that because maybe because I'm engaged in it, because I realize it's not about me. Any, any, and you can tell when it is about the preacher. As the preacher gets up there and they, they're thinking, I'm all of this and I have all of this for all of you. Versus, but not everybody can tell it's all that's about true. That's which the, is yeah, the scary part. That is the okay, scary part. I would agree. That's what you're saying, and that is terrifying to me because there's yeah. always a human element. There's which always is a simple element in it because you're interpreting and putting your spin on it. Absolutely. Unless you're just, you know, no, I'm absolutely. not saying you are. No, 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 you are. No, no, I agree. No, I am. But it, it, it's no, that's not. why we have to to know scripture so that we can discern that. Absolutely. And because I'm so gullible, I can hear something and say, oh my gosh, that was great. And it's then somebody else would tell me what was wrong with it, and I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm so stupid. Well, that's where discernment comes in, and reading scripture. And scripture gives us, the Lord through scripture gives us that discernment. And listening to him and just saying, is that how God works? Is that how God speaks according to scripture? And trusting yay or nay based on that. Even with going to, yeah, and then uh, let me just say this about Advent House, going to Advent House, if you've ever been to Advent House for prayer, you'll receive prayer downstairs, and then upstairs there are people who are listening to the Lord while the people downstairs are praying. They might not even know who's downstairs. In fact, whenever I go, I say, don't tell the people upstairs that I'm the person downstairs, because a lot of people in the church will know me, and so their flesh is going to get more involved. And I want, I want it to be less fleshly as possible. But even in that, you know, sometimes I've been in situations like that where someone will say something, and it's like so clear to me, it's like that's about them. That's like them trying to understand with their natural mind what's going on here. I've also been in situations like that where people have said things that there was no way they could have known. There's no way they could have known that about me. They still didn't even know exactly what that meant, but it was almost like a secret letter from the Lord to me. Like a, one phrase, I think this came up recently. I think I had this phrase in my mind it's like hurting cats and literally it's something I was experiencing was like hurting cats and it was very frustrating for me and I'd already been using that phrase to describe it in my mind which was helpful for me you know to realize I feel like I'm hurting cats here literally that phrase was something that someone upstairs used and heard and prayed over me which is just such a bizarre phrase to pray over me and it was as though the Lord was like yeah you are hurting cats okay <laughs> I've got this <laughs> you know so it's very encouraging for me to hear that um, okay Sandra you just answered it because I, I was yeah. say when you read the scripture concentrate try to get your sermon together do you ever have something just come into your head and you think I haven't thought about that I need to <laughs> absolutely and that's why it's a long slow process at least for me personally of and it's prayer all throughout prayer at the beginning prayer you know while I'm reading scripture prayer when I'm studying prayer when I'm reading over my studying prayer when I'm beginning to write just all about Lord what would you have me say to your people this is not about me what would you like me to say to your people yeah. so many times I've been sitting there and I thought oh my word my mother-in-law used to say, the Lord's been reading my mail. <laughs> yes, I know. Right. The Lord's been reading my mail. And that's the thing is the best part of it as a preacher or someone who's maybe upstairs at the Advent house is to have no idea that you've done that. The best thing is if, the, if you didn't even know you did that because then it just is so much clearer that it's the Lord. Because the people who think they know they've done that, it's like, no, they didn't do that very often. Okay, yeah, Mary. I know we're getting close to it. And testifying, sort of the same thing. Like um, you're prophesying in these. Early, is that what Paul's talking about? Tell, tell the rest of the congregation your experience with faith and your experience with Christianity. That's more helpful than speaking in tongues. He's not talking. He would have said to, testifying and prophesying are two different things. Yeah. So in, in the picture of worship here is very different from our picture of worship. There's not necessarily a liturgy. We're going to see that. We'll continue to read chapter 14. We'll just do one more paragraph today, and we'll read also next week. So you'll see there's some other stuff next week, too, that's going to come up that shows us 
clearly their order for worship is very different than ours. It's very much almost more Quaker style in that many people will come forward with a hymn, with a lesson, with a teaching, a teaching being different from a prophecy, a teaching that um, looks at scripture especially and unpacks it. Like this is teaching, what I'm doing right now, this is teaching. It's different than prophesying or preaching. Um, But testifying also is different, I would say. But testifying is a part of preaching. Um, testifying to what the Lord has done in the past, generally, for his people. And then there's also that specific testifying, what the Lord has done for me personally. That's helpful and good. Um, Let's read verses um, 6 through 12, and then we'll be done very quickly. Although I'm running up against it, aren't I? No, I'm going to pray. How about that? We'll look at six. (laughs) We've We've covered a lot. We've covered a lot now. I'm just going to pray. We've covered a lot. We're going to look at essentially Paul's argument, right, in this chapter. And feel free to go home and read it. Is prophecy and other gifts of the Holy Spirit are going to be far better and more a building for you as a church than the gift of tongues. So, again, stop exalting it, he's saying. Stop pretending like you're someone awesome because you have the gift of tongues. It's not going to be as great as these other gifts that need to be shared. He's going to support his argument. He's going to talk about it. And then he's going to go forward to talk about some other examples too. And we'll see that next week. We're going to read, we're going to do basically 6 through 40 next week. And I feel confident that we'll get through it. Because we won't do as much recap. We had a couple weeks away. So, Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and for the way you pour out your Holy Spirit upon all those who believe in you and are baptized in water. And so, Lord, we ask, um, even as we wonder about this mystery of your Holy Spirit being poured out into us, your Spirit working with our spirit um, to change us and transform us from the inside out, um, and we think about the way you work through us to minister to other people even when we're not aware of it. And we welcome that, Lord. We welcome your work in us, and we welcome your work through us to benefit others and to benefit your church. And we ask, Lord, even in the midst of all this um, confusing conversation and sometimes unsettling conversation about what the different gifts are and what they're like, Lord, would you give us a sense of um, your provision for your people, of your protection of your people. Um, Give us eyes to see and discernment to see where you are truly at work and where it is. Um, human flesh at work and then Lord we also ask that you would um, that you would take us forth from here today um, with your own peace and mercy upon us with a sense of your abiding presence and I even ask during this week Lord that you'd open our eyes to see some of the different gifts that you've given us individually um, that we might be able to continue to use them work through them allow you to work through them for your glory's sake and your people's benefit so we ask this in your name Lord Jesus Amen. Amen.